Thank you for downloading this edition of Wartime. Remember, as always, Wartime is fully supported by contributions from listeners like you. For more information, please visit wartimepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy the program. The great questions of the day will not be settled by means of speeches and majority decisions, but by blood and iron. A Prussian noble by birth, Otto von Bismarck used political cunning and brute force to shake the 19th century world to its core. Wholly committed to diplomacy at the point of a gun, Bismarck unified the disjointed states of the former Holy Roman Empire into a unified country known as the Second Reich. While he remains the picture of conservatism in the 21st century and a hero of the German people, questions remain about Bismarck's motives. His achievements, however, are without equal. On this episode, we discuss Otto von Bismarck, the Iron Chancellor. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another edition of Wartime. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On season 4 of the series, we've been discussing game changers, who they are, what they did, and why they still matter. As always, remember, history is best when it's shared, and you can follow me on Twitter at Brady Kreitzer or by searching Wartime Podcast. You can visit our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Brady J. Kreitzer. You can find news, updates, and events on my author page, bradykreitzer.com. And of course, your home for everything wartime on the web, wartimepodcast.com. On this episode of Wartime, we'll be discussing one of the most enigmatic and powerful figures in European history. Many have claimed he's been one European who has shaped the modern world, and with far lesser importance, he is by far the single most requested person from you, the listeners, on this season of wartime. His name is Otto von Bismarck. He's the creator of the modern German Empire as we know it, and certainly a person that's worth our investigation. Now, this season I've received a lot of emails with with a lot of requests, and we have listeners all over the world. I'm very proud to say that. And every time I get an email, uh, there is this uh, interesting connection to where people are listening, and what subject they'd like to learn more about. And that in itself uh, has been a really rewarding experience for me. Uh, To hear from people from Ireland, to hear from people from Denmark, uh, Israel, Brazil, each of them request uh, to learn more about someone that is important to their own regional history. And it's not usually because they don't know it. Uh, But what i found is it's because they want other people to know that too. And that's the one regret that I have for this season, uh, that we didn't have time to explore more people and more topics. Uh, but Bismarck, by far, uh, is the most requested figure, and I'm talking dozens of emails. And uh, I would be remiss if we didn't do an episode on him before we put a pin here in Season 4. With that in mind, this will be the final episode in terms of subject matter of Season 4. And I'm very happy to say next week in our Season 4 wrap-up, I'll be revealing our Season 5 topic set for January. 
in a lot of ways, we're saving the best for last here. One of the things I didn't want to do with this season uh, was talk about figures that are very obvious. I mean, yes, you could talk about George Washington. Yes, you could talk about JFK. Uh, yes, you could talk about William the Conqueror or Caesar Augustus, these kind of major figures. But the fact of the matter is, there are better sources to find information about them. And I want to dedicate this podcast to dealing with some of the people that you don't often get to learn about. People like the Mayan Lord Pakal, the Britain warrior Queen Boudicca, and why not, the American President Herbert Hoover. It's a weird bunch. But at any rate, we use this this uh, forum to discuss those kind of figures. And Bismarck was always one of the people that I stayed away from for the sheer fact that so much has been written about him and about his achievements. There's been so much debate about his legacy. He is just one of the most important people of the 19th century. You can make a very strong argument that he's one of the most important people in European history after the Roman age. I mean, there's just so much there. So where do we start a discussion of Otto von Bismarck? Who is this man? Why does he matter? Now, he has a huge life. And again, it's one of the issues about this season is that so many of these people have such big lives and do so much uh, that to cover it all would be a hilarious failure in a 45-minute podcast. So I want to talk about Otto von Bismarck in the best way we can, which of course is in context. We'll talk a little bit about his early life. We'll talk a lot about what he does to pursue uh, what we call German unification. But I'd like to spend the first part of this episode talking about what is Germany and why are they so unique. If you've been following me on Twitter, on my Facebook page, uh, you'll know that I'm a big fan of audiobooks. And as great as Audible has been, you have to pay for it. There is an app called the Overdrive Media app. And I'm not being paid for this. I really do swear by it. And what it is is it works with your local library to give you access to audiobooks and ebooks for free. I mean, literally for free. And whenever it's free, I'll listen to almost anything. And with a one-year-old at home, I don't have time to sit down and read anymore. So my, my commute becomes uh, my time to read. But one of the books I've been reading, and it's a haul, it's 56 hours, is The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. Uh, just a, a, a huge epic classic in history. But it does put things into perspective. We do look at World War II, and we do look at people like Adolf Hitler and the Nazi regime, and we look at the horrible things that are exercised underneath them, but one of the most important regimes in world history. And we wonder, where do they come from? I mean, how can a people like the German people, a modern people, an industrialized people, how can they simply sit back and let a, a person like Adolf Hitler besmirch the name of their country forevermore? I mean, when we talk about the most evil regimes in history, we talk about the Nazis. And in that context, I think understanding Germany before Hitler, before the Third Reich, is important, and, and Otto von Bismarck is a big part of that. So let's talk about Germany and talk about the unique worldview that Germans have. For most of the Middle Ages, Germany is under the control of one imperial body we call the Holy Roman 
Empire. Charlemagne in the 7th century is crowned the first Holy Roman Emperor. He is effectively a political leader of most of Europe uh, in a spiritual sense, uh, as well as uh, in a monarchical sense. The Holy Roman Emperor, he's sort of the emperor of all Christendom. And that's a position bestowed upon him by the papal seat, by the Pope, uh, that will legitimize him and make him truly one of the most powerful people uh, in the history of the world. And in some way, shape, or form, the Holy Roman Empire, as we think of it, uh, will exist for the better part of a thousand years. The thousand-year Reich, you could say. The first one. Uh, but that is the first German Reich, as they call it. But Germany is, is dealt an unusual hand in the greater course of European history, which, uh, by the 1500s, really puts it behind the eight ball. So what do I mean? Germany, in the 15th century and the 16th century is a very progressive, modern, liberal place. Uh, more so than France. More so than Britain. Um, certainly more so than any of the Italian states. Uh, and it's interesting because by the end of this whole thing, Germany will be quite the opposite of a liberal state. It will be a polar opposite of a liberal state. We know Adolf Hitler will bring about a fascist state. But in the 15th century, in the 16th century, Germany is the picture of asking big questions and challenging accepted norms. I mean, when you look at Martin Luther, uh, a German who challenges the Catholic Church to create the Protestant Reformation, that's a big event. And that doesn't happen in a place where you are afraid to ask questions, where you know you'll be punished for challenging certain places. Again, Martin Luther and his and his incredible change, that progressive reform happens in Germany, not in France or England. So that's the kind of place Germany is. Now, where does it go wrong? Or at least, where does it change? Well, much of the 17th century, we'll see uh, a lot of Europe, especially all of what we know today as Germany, embroiled in the Thirty Years' War. Um, a series of religious wars, really, uh, that pit Catholics and Protestants initially, uh, and then very quickly sort of boils down to one ruling family versus another. It becomes a very political event really, really fast. But the drums of religious dissent, religious war, really, really bear on. And it goes till 1648. And in 1648, the Thirty Years' War ends with something called the Peace of Westphalia. And in many ways, it forever, uh, I think you could say, uh, determines the destiny of Germany, uh, not as a progressive liberal modern place, but as a very backward uh, and behind the time, uh, deeply authoritarian place. As a result of the Thirty Years' War, you'll see all kinds of reforms on the continent of Europe that don't necessarily concern us today, but one of them that, that does occur and that does deeply affect us is this idea that the Holy Roman Empire is effectively dissolved, broken down to whatever it used to be is gone. Uh, it's not what it was under Charlemagne. That was a real empire. And in many ways, aside from Rome, the first uh, power to truly dominate the continent of Europe in, in a full way. But after the Peace of Westphalia in 1648, Germany is, is given a sense of, we don't want to say self-determinism, but uh, Germany or the Holy Roman Empire is basically fractured into about three to 350 different states, kingdoms, duchies, landgravates, 
whatever you'll say, each with their own regional sovereign, sometimes a monarch, sometimes a dynastic ruler, and each with their own view of the world. There will be Catholic German states, there will be Protestant German states. Um, in some cases, when you look at France and Britain and England coming out of that time period as unified for the first time, uh, and again, France and England are very disunified places before this. And when they unify, they become strong. Germany takes a, an opposite turn. They become more fractured than ever. And you can imagine what that looks like. Each king in Germany believes they're the most important. But when you're one of 350, that's not going to do much for you. Uh, so the progress and the achievement and the change and the open-mindedness of the Holy Roman Empire that we see in the 15th and 16th century is really stopped cold by the Thirty Years' War. Uh, and more importantly, the Peace of Westphalia, 1648, that ends it. So, don't think of Germany as a nation-state as we have it today, because it just doesn't exist. It would have been more appropriate to call it maybe the Germanies, or Germany in a general sense, a collection of German states. Now, these people speak the same language, they like the same kind of music, they like the same kind of food and drink, um, they all recognize that they are German. However, they can't see past their own political differences to ever take that step toward unifying themselves. So that puts them in a unique and, and, and pretty problematic place for a lot of their history in the 18th century uh, and beyond into the 19th century. Again, as Britain and France sort of get their acts together, uh, Germany takes a step in the opposite direction. So very problematic. Now, whenever I teach my classes, uh, usually in the Western Civilization Part 2 section, uh, about Germany and its role in Europe, I always treat it this way. In a lot of ways, because it's a survey-level class, it's the story of England and France. Yeah, we talk about the Muslims in the Ottoman Empire, and yes, we talk about Italy sometimes, uh, but it's the drawback of a non-specialized class, of a survey class, it sort of becomes this dichotomy between England and France. Um, and I always tell my students, when we get into the 1800s, Germany remains broken up into 350 different parts. Um, it's sort of a looming threat to the English and the French. I mean, they are the superpowers, Britain and France. Uh, but Germany is very frightening because uh, Germany is powerful and strong, but disunited. And if they could ever get their act together, if they could ever unify themselves, they would be far and away the most powerful polity on the continent of Europe. I mean, they were. And the British and French were always sort of watching that with great trepidation. Again, we view it as a race between ourselves, but what would happen if Germany would ever unify? And Germany is sort of the looming shadow over the entire class. When will they do it? If they do it, what is possible. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Now, I do want to talk a little bit about the worldview of Germany at this time. Because one of the other legacies uh, of the Thirty Years' War and the Peace of Westphalia is this idea that republicanism, which by the time you get to 1776 and beyond is proven to be a viable system in the United States of America, is a very dangerous thing. The people of Germany believe pretty strongly now, not all of them, but I would say it's a cultural attribute that most of them share. That the most effective government is an authoritarian government, where a strong man 
makes decisions for the best of the people uh, and the best of the country. It's the country first. It's Germany first, that sort of idea. Um, so there's no problem with authoritarian regimes in their mind, as long as they're serving the people. And you'll see as you get to Germany in the middle of the 18th century and beyond, that's something they're willing to fight for. Uh, in my last book, Hessians, uh, Mercenaries, Rebels, and the War for British North America, shameless plug, one of the things that I do in that book is I show how the Germans, particularly the Hessians in one regard, uh, view the American Revolution. And for them, it's a total affront to the system of the world that they support. Again, the idea of people voting, to them, is mob rule. I mean, what gives these average people any authority to make any decision? Uh, to them, an effective system, and a system that works for them, is one where a righteous king makes the decision from the top. And it's your right and duty as a German to follow behind them. That's sort of the, the way we see it. And that's the way a lot of Germans will see it. And because of Otto von Bismarck, who we're talking about today, that really becomes cemented into their brains. So when a person like Adolf Hitler in 1929 and 1930 is campaigning in a republic, the Weimar Republic after World War I, that he will abolish the presidency and he will abolish the Reichstag, uh, their parliamentary representation. He'll eliminate this idea of a republic uh, and he'll put in place a strong German ruler, a Fuhrer. Uh, that's popular. And it resounds with the people. Now, he does this differently to different groups, but it's always the same message. The idea that we can let the masses rule Germany is what got us into this mess that was the Weimar Republics, this puppet government they believe set up after World War I. Give me the power. Put it back in my hands like we had under the Kaiser and under Otto von Bismarck, and I will take Germany to new heights. That wouldn't work in America. You're voting to abolish your right to vote effectively, but you have to understand the deep history behind that message for anything like that to ever be possible. Let's go to the year, say, 1750. In 1750, you have 350 different German states, and we see what we call German dualism emerge. And German dualism is basically this. Yes, there's 350 different states, but not all of these states are created equal. There are two very big and very powerful German states. In the south, you have Austria. That's a name we should all recognize, and it's still around today. German-speaking peoples, German heritage. In the north, however, you have a different German state. One that is very unique in that its creation is, um, should we say, somewhat artificial. It's a kingdom we call Prussia. Prussia. That's like Russia with a P in front of it. And Prussia is a unique case, whereas Austria is a very old, very celebrated monarchy. Prussia, which begins its journey as a place called Brandenburg, really isn't much to speak of. It's not very different. Uh, than, than most other German states. It has not a lot of natural resources, fairly limited population. It doesn't stand out in a crowd. But by the time you get to the 1700s, 1750s, under the command of a ruler named Frederick the Great, the Great Seven Years' War begins around the world. In North America, we, we would describe our theater as the French and Indian War. Uh, you see Prussia jump on the map because Prussia decided to put all of their money and all of their attention into one thing. And it's this one thing that was designed to make them great. And that one thing was the military. The Prussian military 
absorbed a huge percentage of their budget, upwards of 60%, some speculate. And there was never an army big enough or better equipped uh, for the Prussians. That was their thing. They're going all in on that. And that was going to set them aside. And they made agreements with Great Britain to fight on Britain's behalf in a lot of regards during the Seven Years' War while the British fought the French around the world. And it cemented their legacy as a major military superpower of Europe. But it was, again, a bit artificial. It was a bit of a farce. Some people said Prussia was not a state with an army. It was an army with a state. And the reason I'm going off onto that tangent is because it's out of this world that Otto von Bismarck, our topic for today, comes out of. He's a person that does care about the larger German world, but it's always Prussia first. Uh, and that's going to be a guiding principle for him as we see what he does and how he does it. So let's get into the man, who he is, what he represents, and again, why we should care. Otto von Bismarck is sort of a popular name. It's not his real name. His actual name is Otto Eduard Leopold von Bismarck. He's born in 1815. And as you can imagine, this is a story we've told over and over and over again this season. He's not born as a poor peasant. He's born into the upper class of the Prussian world. We call the upper landowning class the aristocracy of the Prussian uh, kingdom, uh, the Junkers. And that's spelled like Junker. Um, if you don't speak German or are familiar with German, you have that J. So he's born a Junker. And this puts him on a fast track. A, fra a fast track for prestige, a fast track for uh, success. Again, this is very much a world where you don't climb the ladder of success. You were born on an elevator, or you're not. And that's where we see Otto von Bismarck come from. He receives an education. He receives a number of, um, again, opportunities most people wouldn't. And he even gets involved in the diplomatic corps. But it's not until we get to the year 1847 that we see the political career of Otto von Bismarck, a dedicated autocrat, so to speak, a dedicated believer in authoritarianism, that he really gets his chance. In 1847, he goes to the Prussian parliament, which is, you know, not the great position we think. Again, these are people that deeply believe in rule from the top, the iron fist from above. Parliament is more of a place of debate and consideration than it is like the American Congress or the British Parliament today, where laws are actually passed. I should amend that, where laws can be passed, but lately haven't been. And this is where he begins to see his view of the world. Now, in 1848, larger circumstances spread across Prussian influence into the rest of Europe, because in 1848, we call this the year of revolutions. There were revolutions all over Europe, not just in German territories, French territories, Italian territories, you name it. Uh, and they are uprisings of the people versus uh, these very big autocratic governments. And you see these riots and rebellions and bloodshed all over the continent. And for Otto von Bismarck, this is uh, an event as he's watching it in a position of some consideration, uh, a major, major validation of his concerns about natural democracy. It's nothing more than mob rule. The 1848 revolutions, and there's over 50 of them that year. So this is not held to one region. 50 are very scary for the people on top. And very scary for most Germans 
as well, because again, that's what they fear. That's what they viewed the American Revolution as, mob rule. And this in 1848 validates them. By the way, a lot of the 48ers, as we'll call them, uh, in places like Ireland and Germany, uh, revolutionaries that failed, would actually pack up their bags and go to America about 12 years later uh, when the American Civil War broke out. Because they viewed that as a natural um, a natural extension of their fight. And they didn't pick sides. I mean, they went very evenly to the north and the south. Uh, many Irish, but not all, uh, but many Irish ventured south, ideologically speaking, because they were battling against England and the power of Britain, and they didn't like the idea of an overarching government interfering with individual states. A very Confederate argument. Most of the Germans, however, ideologically aligned with the Union because they understood how a strong, unified state, which to them was only a pipe dream, was something worth defending. Uh, so that's an interesting point. But Bismarck's in this. He doesn't go to America. He's very Prussian. Uh, but it's a validation for him of that time. And it's also this time he begins to travel Europe in an official capacity. From 1851 all the way to 1862, Bismarck travels all over Germany, all over France, uh, and even Russia. And he sees the world uh, in a new way. And he sees the world in a way that troubles him deeply. If you know anything about Europe at this time, you know there's a lot of perceived threats through partisan ideology. Say that one ten times fast. And Otto von Bismarck sees the world that way. Again, he believes in the autocratic rule, the iron fist of a ruler from the top governing for everyone. And he sees socialism emerging in Europe. Uh, and it scares him. I mean, he'll obsess over socialism uh, to a very strong degree. And it will be a guiding principle for him. Again, number one is spread Prussian influence, but number two is crush this socialist evil that's creeping into his world because it takes power away from the top and brings power down to the bottom. In 1861, the king of Prussia is a man named Wilhelm I. And Wilhelm I will make Bismarck his chief minister. Now, this is a unique position. Because like many cases in Europe, often it is the chief minister who's actually making the calls. Yes, Wilhelm is the king, but everyone knows that Bismarck is calling the shots. And in many ways, because the king, uh, I think, respects his opinion so much, he becomes to depend on Bismarck's opinion. And we see a manipulation from behind the scenes of the king. That even though Bismarck is not in charge of all of Prussia, uh, he is making the determinations that would really fill the requirements of a king. He's the one behind the scenes calling all the shots. So in 1864, and this is what historians debate, Bismarck begins an ambitious plan for Prussia itself. And the plan is to expand Prussia's influence, again, through military force. And that always comes first. Diplomacy, he says, is nothing without force. Um... And he, he wants to do that by expanding and taking over smaller German states. And he believes very strongly in this. He tells his people it's worth the fight, it's worth the blood, and it's worth the treasure. And he begins looking for opportunities, uh, and they're pretty weak opportunities, but hey, he's an optimist, to inject himself, that is Prussia, in foreign affairs and begin to pick up considerable influence as a result. And this really takes hold 
in the year 1863. In 1863, the king of Denmark will die. And when the king of Denmark dies, and this is true for monarchies all across Europe, there's always sort of a squabbling over his inheritance, over the line of succession, and usually leads to a war because the territories in question are often up for grabs. Frederick VII of Denmark dies in November, and there are two regions uh, that are claimed by Denmark, one called Schleswig and the other called Holstein, uh, which are majority German speakers, German culture, but are being claimed by Christian IX, uh, the next in line to Frederick VII. And if they were claimed by, by Christian IX, they would become parts of Denmark. Now, for Bismarck, when he's watching this play out, this is his great chance to set the tone. He can move forces into Schleswig and Holstein for the express purposes of reclaiming, and this is air quotes, German territory from a foreign king. And at the same time, when he does that, he can make sure that they will be beholden to Prussia for their freedom, and therefore the Prussian worldview is their worldview. Now, in order to do this, you will need a war. And many people in Prussia begin to question if this is worthwhile. Of course, you know the answer for Bismarck. Bismarck will uh, submit forces into uh, Denmark, into into this region, uh, and there will be a war. It'll last several months. In the end, the Prussians win. So there is the blueprint, I think you can say, for how you will uh, conquer these territories. And he'll do this in different places time and time again. Now again, we want to reiterate exactly what Bismarck's doing and get back to the big question historians face. He's gobbling up at least in their terms of their sphere of influence, these tiny, irrelevant, in his mind, German states. But he's he's doing them in such a way that if you combine enough tiny, irrelevant German states under your power, you're unifying Germany. And here's the question. Is Bismarck expanding Prussian authority? Because for every tiny German state he gobbles up, he exerts his authority over them. Or is he attempting to actively unify Germany uh, in, uh, in some liberal or open-minded way. And of course, I think you know the answer to that. Um, it's very clear that everywhere he goes, Prussia succeeds. But remember German dualism. Remember this idea that Germany really is controlled by two poles, one in Prussia in the north and the other in the south, Austria. And Austria will always, will always be a thorn in the side of the dream of a unified Germany or expanded Prussia, however you want to view it. Austria has a lot of power. Austria has a lot of prestige. They have a lot of history. They have a big army. They are a major player on the, on the European scene. The last thing they want to do is join in some confederation with the Prussians and all these tiny states that they bl believe are beneath them. And Bismarck has to deal with a policy and has to contend that contends with Austria in a succinct and clear way. If you can't have them on your side, at least get them out of the picture. And in 1866, that's exactly what he does. In 1866, you'll see the beginning of the Austro-Prussian War. Bismarck, using a technicality in one of the many treaties that they've signed over the years, uh, will say that Austria has violated that treaty. Once again, Germany, or the dream of Germany, is the victim, 
and there should be a war. And it's a war that draws in many regional powers. It draws in the Italians, for example, uh, into this conflict. I mean, this just goes to show how powerful Germany could be if it ever got its act together and actually unified. It's not unified yet. But in the end, uh, Bismarck and the Prussians will find victory in this war. When they do that, they don't get uh, all of Austria as German territory. Again, that's that's too difficult in his mind to do. And it's one of the reasons that uh, in about 50 years, Adolf Hitler will be obsessed with the idea of Austria. But uh, what they do get is Austria out of the way. Uh, Prussia gets a lot of tiny satellite states, German states of Austria. Uh, and they form something called the Northern German Confederation. And what this is, is the dream of the extraordinary expanded uh, Prussian world that was so vital to Bismarck uh, for so long. So we've seen him as a man here willing to use military force as a tool of diplomacy. Not only was he willing to do it, uh, but I think you can say it's his primary go-to. I mean, he's not sitting down and talking to many people unless there's a, a cannon over his shoulder. Uh, but that's not even Bismarck's master stroke yet. In fact, that won't come until uh, 1871. Not against Austria, not against any German, but against France. Bismarck, as we can see by now, is a realist. I mean, he's a lot of things, but he is practical. Uh, and whenever he looks at all these movements he's doing, these overtures of expansion and aggression above all else, he understands the game. He understands that Europe is the world's largest chessboard. He also understands that history looms large. He's just handed a very convincing defeat to Austria. He's effectively guaranteed they will never be part of a German world. They'll be on the outside looking in at all times. But he also understands that alliances matter. Just as the Prussians had an alliance with Britain in the Seven Years' War, he understands that the Austrians and the French have a deep history as well. And if the Austrians want to retaliate against the Prussians or now the Northern German Confederation, France may be a willing ally. And he was right. The leader of France is a man named Napoleon III. And Napoleon III looks at what the Germans are doing with a very close eye. Because again, the looming threat of Europe to upend the constant first place, second place battle between Britain and France was this idea of a unified Germany. It was a pipe dream for most of history, but it seemed to be getting closer than ever. And Napoleon feared that his next move, Bismarck's next move, will be an assault on France itself. Now remember, Bismarck is not in charge of anything, so to speak. The king, Wilhelm I, is in charge of the Prussian government and the Northern German Confederation, effectively. Uh, but also remember that behind the scenes, it's all Bismarck. So, when we talk about making a case for war or a plan for a war, that's one thing. But when we talk about this next, you're going to see that Bismarck is willing to go to war at all costs. In fact, for him, it's the only option. So here's the deal. The Spanish throne becomes vacant in the late 1860s. And the person who is eligible for taking the throne is a small regional ruler in Germany who falls under the hegemony now of the Prussians, one of these smaller states. Napoleon III will write a letter to Wilhelm I of Prussia asking that he guarantees that no German assume the throne of Spain. And, of course, the king writes back very cordially, and it goes on and on and on. Now, for Bismarck, 
Friendly relations. Diplomacy talking. That's not going to cut it. So he actually intercepts these letters and begins to edit them. And he edits them so that both sides, France and and Prussia, feel aggrieved. And he even adds a little color in there to make everyone offended by one another. He does it so that what are good, peaceful, diplomatic talks actually seem to be very uh, heavy-handed and very aggressive uh, and very unfriendly. So after he makes these edits, he leaks them to the press. And this is a pretext for war. Now, it's one thing to say, I want war at all costs, but it's another thing to actively sabotage peaceful talks of diplomacy for the sheer fact of bringing war to light. Because again, he didn't want to wait for a Franco-Austrian alliance against him, because he didn't know if he could survive that. And another threat was to the east, it was Russia. Russia could come in side with France for no purpose other than maintaining that old balance of power and that order that's existed in Europe for so long. So the Franco-Prussian War begins in 1870, and it ends in 1871. And for Bismarck and authoritarian regimes all over the world, this is his masterpiece. He saw it as a political world. He saw it as a political move. Again, there were some people in the German sphere that didn't support unification. They didn't support a unified Germany working as one. What he thought was, aside from all the things we've talked about diplomatically, that if the if France was perceived as a, as, a, as a threat, as an enemy, it would unify in spirit the people of Germany who were the holdouts behind him. And that's exactly what it was. I mean, it was a manufactured war on Bismarck's part. You're talking about massive global events. And you're talking about Otto von Bismarck with his large mustache moving pieces around the chessboard himself. Uh, how can we not talk about this guy? But the Franco-Prussian War, the big war of that decade, uh, not the American Civil War, at least it is in America, but this is in terms of world affairs, occurs, and the result is everything uh, that Bismarck wants. He acquires some uh, territory that's sort of border territory between France and Germany, but more importantly, he has the political capital now to foster a true German unification. And at the Palace of Versailles, he brings together all the German states that he's acquired, and they all declare. And this is incredible, because they're effectively giving up their birthright of power in their own meaningless little state. That Germany is now one place once again. And who's the new emperor of Germany? The new Kaiser, as they say, Wilhelm I of Prussia. For Otto von Bismarck, he's just received a blank check to be the most powerful nation in Europe. And you can't minimize that. That term, Kaiser, by the way, is an interesting one. Uh, legitimacy is important. Kaiser is effectively the German word for that last great ruler of Europe, Caesar. So that name has a lot of very powerful and intense symbolism. And it's one of the reasons that Adolf Hitler will adopt a lot of Roman propaganda later on in the Third Reich whenever uh, he's trying to take over Europe. This, of course, is the Second Reich. Um, so this is what Otto von Bismarck does. Now, after this, Bismarck's now an old man. Um, things kind of start to unravel for him. He starts to suffer some losses in Germany uh, by leading what, what he called a Kulturkampf, uh, or a culture struggle in Germany. And really, he went head-to-head -head with the Catholic Church. Um, 
it was a long struggle. It was a political struggle, not a bloody struggle for the most part. Uh, but it was a failure. Uh, he wasn't winning. He wasn't gaining support. Again, his primary enemy now is domestic rather than foreign. He had his unified Germany as we know it. The Second Reich. Uh, and he's got to keep it. Now, some of the things that frightened him, again, more than French invasion or British invasion, again, is the enemy within. Uh, enemies like socialists and foreigners inside his own kingdom. I mean, this is what he has. And again, you know, Adolf Hitler doesn't come up with this stuff on his own. It's These are old feelings. And he begins to wonder, who are the people that the socialists especially uh, can gain to their side? Uh, who can they pull in? And he looks at the working class and the lower class. And he looks at what he can do from his position of power to ensure that they will be on his side. And in the 1880s, think about this, the 1880s, he passes a series of laws that will guarantee that the average person feels like even though they have no voice in their government, their government is working for them. The first thing he does is pass universal health care. Holy smokes. Think about that. Universal health care in Germany in 1883. He then provides accident insurance to his people, 1884, pensions in 1889. This is a progressive guy in this regard, but the whole time he's doing it, make no mistake, he's holding his nose. This goes against everything he believes in as an authoritarian, but he also understands that it's the most effective, practical way to combat the message of socialism that the lower middle classes are attracted to all the time. Now, he himself is interesting in his view of the world. He was always Prussian first and didn't care much for the colonial system. Uh, but in 1885, he does hold a conference in Berlin that ends what we call the Scramble for Africa. It effectively allowed European nations to carve up the continent of Africa, himself included, Germany included, uh, without the fear of fighting each other along the way. They call him uh, the Iron Chancellor and that stays with me, the Iron Chancellor, Otto von Bismarck, uh, because he sets Germany on a course that will lead to conflict with Britain and France and World War One and World War II. But he had a dream and he went after it. And there's no doubt he changed Europe. So we have to think about it that way. He's doing a lot. He built it. Now he has to keep it. Whenever Wilhelm I dies in 1888, he's succeeded by his son, Frederick III, Friedrich III will die as well. His grandson, Wilhelm II, takes over. And when Wilhelm II takes over, Bismarck finds that he is much more difficult to control than his father was. And Wilhelm II, because being emperor, being Kaiser of Germany is his birthright, uh, views Bismarck as a threat. So he fires him. He's gone. And it gets us back to that discussion we had previously uh, of whether Bismarck's ultimate legacy should be uh, German unification, which he undoubtedly did, or Prussian expansion, because Bismarck dies eight years after he's fired. And here's some of the things you have to think about. Yes, the Kaiser, the emperor of Germany, is just the Prussian king. So that's one for Prussia. But there is a parliamentary representation, a Reichstag, as they called it. And it's based on population. It's proportional. And when you looked at the membership, the voting membership, 
uh, Prussia was far and away the most powerful. I think something like almost 50% of all members were Prussian. So the king, the Kaiser, so to speak, uh, the emperor is Prussian. The parliament is made up of all German states, but the Prussians have the overwhelming voting majority. And what the Prussians want, the Prussians get. And this may be the biggest question about this. And I think the best thing for us to talk about is what was he doing? Again, expanding Germany or expanding Prussia? It's hard to say. I do know that when Adolf Hitler begins his takeover uh, of Europe and, in his mind, what is the takeover of the world, uh, the Iron Chancellor Bismarck, with all of his great quotes he has, you can look them up, amazing sort of one-liners, um, Bismarck looms large in Hitler's mind. I also know that hanging up in Hitler's office was a painting of Frederick II, or Frederick the Great, uh, that great king of Prussia in the Seven Years' War that really made the militarized state what it was. So in many ways, you know, Hitler might be the extension of Prussian life. Uh, Berlin was his capital, after all, which was in former Prussian territory. So I hope this gives you some food for thought. If you're familiar with Bismarck, maybe it'll allow you to ask some questions you hadn't thought about. If you don't understand Bismarck, but most of us at least have some basic understanding of Adolf Hitler and Nazism and the Third Reich, um, this might be helpful too. Because the Second Reich was all Bismarck. Uh, and he did a lot to gain it. Whether that was right or wrong, that's sort of up to history to judge. So we'll see you next time on Wartime. Remember, next uh, episode is our season four wrap up. We'll answer your questions. Send them in. If I read them on the air, you will get a free book. Uh, either Hessians, my new book, Gaia Sutta and the Fall of Indian America, uh, my book from 2013, or Fort Pitt, a frontier history from 2012, uh, signed by myself, and we'll reveal season five's topic, which will be in January. Thank you for joining us. I hope to hear from you. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime.